Post-production for this episode of Fruit Bowl is sponsored by Spaces, the new chat-based app for queer people to connect over all the things they're passionate about. And now, for a limited time, you can invest in Spaces for as little as $100 via a WeFunder campaign. Help support this much-needed, safe, digital platform for the LGBTQ community. Look for Spaces in the App Store and learn more about how you can invest by visiting QueerSpaces.com. Welcome to Getting Fresh with Fruit Bowl. My name is Ryan Whedon. I'm an editor and mixer for Fruit Bowl, and for this episode, I'm also your host. Dave asked me to fill in for him because Fruit Bowl has been invited to participate in a three-day workshop sponsored by Film Independent and CNN for developing TV docu-series projects. This week's episode features a conversation Dave had with Eric, a nurse living with his partner Dave in Portland, Oregon. Eric was recently diagnosed with monkeypox, and he shares his experience with the illness and how he and his partner are coping with the physical and mental effects of the disease. After that, we're excited to present a deeply personal listener-submitted story about coming of age, overcoming trauma, and reclaiming the word pride. Remember, we're still accepting your story submissions on an ongoing basis. Whether you're describing a memorable hookup or relaying something you've learned about sex over the years, we love hearing from you. If you'd like to contribute, you can record your story using your phone's voice memo app and send the file to dave at fruitbowlpodcast.com. Or you can write an email and send it to the same address. Dave has been chatting with Fruit Bowl fans in the Fruit Bowl areas on the Spaces app. This week, the hot topic was favorite lubes to use and which brands travel well. You can join the conversation on any of the four Fruit Bowl spaces, including the After Dark, Kinky Queers, or the Fem Space. Download Spaces in the App Store today. Thanks to our newest Patreon member, Philip. That puts us at 46 patrons who, together, contribute $295 per month to help pay for things like performer allowance, website maintenance, music licenses, and promotional efforts. If you'd like to learn more about supporting the show financially, visit patreon.com slash fruitbowlpodcast. Now, here's Dave's interview with Eric about his experience with monkeypox. And stay tuned after the interview for a special listener submission. I would like to welcome Eric. Before we start in on the monkeypox issue, Eric, if you could just introduce yourself. Hi, my name is Eric. I live in Portland, Oregon, and I'm 46 years old. And you live there with your partner? I do. I live here with my partner. And what do you do for a living? Uh, I'm a medical assistant. I'm also in school for respiratory therapy. Okay, great. I mean, we're so lucky to have you as a guest, as someone who can speak firsthand about not only your monkeypox experience, but also as a a medical professional, because we did a little um, pre-interview before this, and you wrote some answers to my questions that are extremely detailed. (laughs) So I'm so excited that you have that knowledge base to, to inform listeners about you know, your treatments and and what all the process has been. So I'm really excited about this conversation. So thank you so much for for doing it. Yeah, thank you for having me. So before we get into the nitty gritty, just give us 
an idea of where you're at right now in your diagnosis and recovery. How are you feeling? Um, today is pretty okay, I'd say. How long has it been since your diagnosis? So my diagnosis, um, it's been 13 days as of today. Okay. Go ahead and just describe a little bit more about where you're at right now in the process of recovery. Where I am right now in the process of recovery is that the scabs from the lesions themselves have formed and I'm kind of waiting for them to fall off. I'm wearing gloves on my hands because I still have some lesions that are, are visible. And not only is that potentially infectious to others, but it could be left on surfaces that share surfaces that me and my partner touch. So we're trying to be uber careful to not um, spread it around. And then it also it could potentially linger on surfaces. So we're trying to make sure that we're uh, super careful. But primarily uh, where I am is I have a lot of lesions that are have formed and have scapped over on my feet. And I particularly have a portion of my heel that just looks super bruised and it's really painful. So that's kind of what I'm dealing with currently. And your partner's infected as well? Yeah, my partner's infected as well, but he's well into the healing process. In fact, I would say he's completely, um, he's ready to go back into public uh, now because he doesn't have any scabs. Right now, what he has left over is a little bit of peeling skin it's unsightly, but from what we're told by our providers, he's no longer infectious as long as there's no scabbing and there's um, new skin that is showing. And is he at risk of becoming reinfected because you're still dealing with the infection? So that's a great question, and we don't have a definitive answer. We have been told by our providers not to share utensils, not to share bedding, although we do sleep together. So some of that is unavoidable, but we're not sharing towels. We're inside of our home. We're not using hand towels. So we're going through a lot of paper products, unfortunately, because we're using paper towels. Every time we wash our, our hands, we're drying our hands and we're putting on a new set of gloves. So there's a lot of waste involved with the process of trying to keep ourselves as isolated and safe from each other as we possibly can. Mm -hmm. What are the symptoms you're still dealing with besides the scabs themselves? How are you feeling otherwise? Day to day is different. Um, I'm still dealing with a lot of chronic fatigue and just body aches, general body aches. But the sites of the lesions can be quite painful, mm. um, especially as they start to, they call it erupt which mm. kind of sounds um, very ominous. And in some cases it is. In our case, it's been pretty mild, except for the ones on my heels. The ones on my heels are, I wouldn't say excruciatingly painful, but I would say that they're extremely uncomfortable because they're at that process where the scab is trying to come off and the new skin is trying to form. And, you know, let's face it, our feet, are high areas of potential infection mm. because we walk on them and you know there's other issues with our feet they're hard to clean especially if you have calluses which in my in my case 
I do have calluses and it seems that there may be a potential infection there. I'm going to have to see a doctor tomorrow to see if that's the case. Are you able to go to the doctor physically? Yes. So there's really no particular isolation. When we see the physicians, they are asking that we come in and have any scabs that are on our bodies covered. Mm. And uh, so the last time I went in and saw my physician, I wore a long sleeve shirt, I wore sweats. I was covered basically head to toe, including gloves. And fortunately for me, I did not have any lesions on my face. Mm. So there was nothing there that was visible. I think I had one small one on my head, but that's low risk because no one should actually be like touching my head. So unless I would scratch it Mm. or anything, that would be the biggest uh, infection point. And then they generally try and get you back pretty quickly. (laughs) Get you (laughs) back get you back into an exam room Mm. uh, because they don't want you lingering in the waiting area. But it sounds like since the scabs are on your feet, it sounds like mobility in general is a challenge. Is that accurate? I would say that's accurate. Um, For me, the last two days, it's been really very painful to walk. Mm -hmm. Um, And to the point where I'm actually limping because I'm not trying to put as much mm. pressure on my left heel. Mm. Uh, I was telling my partner today that I feel like the pain has increased. Yesterday when I was walking around, it was painful, but if I wasn't putting pressure, I was pretty comfortable otherwise, like I wasn't experiencing pain, but but today it seems like it's just aching and throbbing even when I'm not putting any pressure on my heel. Yeah, oh gosh. Well, it sounds like it's really fortunate though that you have him there to help you i i can't imagine what this is like for people who are alone and living by themselves yeah that's a good point i also definitely would echo that same sentiment i think that people who are living alone they absolutely need our support yeah um you know possibly physically but certainly emotionally Mm mm-hmm just quarantine in general is very, well, um, isolating <laughs> for obvious yeah, reasons. Exactly. And, um, you know, I think that it's also important to speak about the financial impact to certain persons mm-hmm. who may be working jobs that they don't have any short term disability, any vacation accrued, or any kind of monetary backup. And so if they're not working, they're not earning a paycheck. And so, this can take up to four weeks. And mm-hmm. in my case, I think it will be at least four weeks. Yeah. And so for some people that could be financially devastating to them. Yeah. Take us back to the very beginning. Like what were the first signs of infection that you noticed? That's an interesting question. And I'm glad you asked it because uh, Dave and I basically experienced two different scenarios. Mm. In the beginning, my partner, what he experienced was a high fever associated with a severe sore throat. And so as a healthcare provider myself and having experienced strep throat, that was my immediate, like, you know, I, I can't say diagnosis because I'm not allowed to diagnose anything, but that was my immediate thought. So I told him, I said, hey, go to urgent care. 
and get a test for strep. And I was very confident that he would come back and tell me that he had strep. That wasn't the case. He came back and he said, my strep test was negative. Mm. And we were both kind of shocked. But then also as a healthcare provider, I also know that there's a lot of false negatives, mm-hmm. especially with the flu, strep can come back false negatives, and a lot of other testing that we do can come back falsely negative. But the next day, he started developing the lesions. Mm. Wow. And so we both pretty much immediately knew that it was HMPXV. Mm-hmm. And so from that point forward, we started taking a lot of isolation precautions. You were still asymptomatic, correct? That's correct. And he was asymptomatic except for the fever and the sore throat, which we didn't associate with yeah. HMPXV. But once his lesions started to form, you, you guys knew what you were in for? Yeah, absolutely. Mm-hmm. Um, because... I had dealt with cases in our clinic previously and had done a lot of research on this and was well-informed as a healthcare provider. I was convinced that we had it. Yeah. So, um, so then it was just getting a diagnosis. And from the notes you supplied me before our conversation today, you say that it actually took a while for the official diagnosis, right? A lot of the tests came back negative. That is correct. Uh, so my partner had gone, um, I think his, his symptoms started on a weekend. So, you know, as, as soon as I think Monday, whatever date that was, I don't remember exactly what day, you know, he immediately, after he had gone to urgent care and had the negative strep, then he had gone to our local health department, which is Multnomah County Health. And they tested him there and they gave him a presumptive diagnosis of HMPXV, but it took like three days before we got the official result, and that official result was negative. This is so shocking to me that that a, a test by a health department can still come back negative, even though you guys knew that it was definitely monkeypox. Can you explain to me why that is as a healthcare professional? Um. <laughs> that is a hard question to answer because like I had mentioned before, uh, with these tests, there are a lot of false negatives. Mm-hmm. Um, and so there's a lot of different moving parts here. First, this HMPXV is very new to us in, in the United States. It's endemic in other countries, but it is not endemic here. So my guess is we haven't refined the testing mm-hmm. where it needs to be. And I'm sure that that will happen. Maybe it's also, there needs to be a test that is tuned to this particular strain of monkeypox. Because what I've heard from news sources is that, for instance, there's no known transmission yet from like surfaces. It's mostly been sexual transmission with this outbreak currently. Is is that correct? That is what I understand as well. Okay. Um, But like, it's still... I mean, you became infected after your partner, so that could have been, you know, a result of you just living together, you know, but who knows? Yeah, I'll be quite frank. When he first presented with any kind of symptoms with 
be it fever or sore throat. I work in healthcare, so I certainly don't want to get anything and then pass it on. Mm-hmm. So immediately we ceased all physical contact. Yeah. And I mean, like, all physical contact, except for we did sleep in the same bed. But, like, there was no kissing. There was mm-hmm. no real touching. There was, like, we, were, we tried to make sure that we were not using surfaces from the start. Yes. And we were cleaning things. So that leads me to believe that there can be more casual contact transmission. Mm-hmm. Although officially, that's not the case. Yeah. So after the official diagnosis came down, how did your treatment progress in a pharmacological way or in, like in a professional medical way? What, was, what were the first steps you had to take to start treating yourself? So after the diagnosis of HMPXV, the healthcare providers offered a treatment and that treatment was called TPOX. Mm. Some people might be familiar with it. Others probably not because it's not something that's actually been around in the United States for very long. Mm. And so it is kind of experimental because even though it is approved by the FDA to be used for, for smallpox, it's not approved for the use of HMPXV. So it's considered experimental. And I actually had to listen to someone read four pages of information and then actually sign a document agreeing to take the medication, Mm -hmm. which I did. Because it's not FDA approved. This is a formality that the government has to do in order to for you to be, have access to something experimental. That's correct. And mm-hmm. in addition to that, it also gives them permission to like monitor me and ask me questions about am I experiencing side effects. Um, it also gives them the ability to ask me to come in and take my blood for testing on how my body reacted to the the TPOX medication. Yeah, so there's a lot of follow-up that goes with it. Do you know if this experimental treatment has been widely available to people who have tested positive, or are you a unique or in a sort of smaller select sample of people who have access to it? From my understanding, at least you know, 13 days ago, whenever I was initially diagnosed, that it was not widely available. It was mm. only available in some areas, I don't know if they were doing that on purpose, just for sampling purposes, but I think it's more widely available now. And, you know, the Portland area is a smaller market, so I was very surprised that we were actually able to get this experimental drug right away. Yeah. It's great that you have had that access. Do you think that it's helped? That's that's a hard question to answer. And honestly, I don't know that it did help. Mm Mm-hmm. Because it sounds like it's still pretty painful for you. Yeah, and I'm going into, I guess, my third week now of this, and uh, I'm still pretty uncomfortable and, and not fully healed. Now, as a side note, I did discontinue the medication two days ago. Mm. And that was, I wouldn't say it was against medical advice. It was a joint decision based out of an abundance of caution after speaking to my provider regarding vision problems that I had been experiencing. Mm. Vision problems that you think are a result of the medication? 
that could be a result of the medication. The, I see. the medication and the diagnosis of HMPXV kind of were right at the same time. Mm-hmm. Like it was within, well, actually I started the medication the same day I got my diagnosis. I see. Yeah. So it's hard to say if the vision changes that I'm experiencing are related to the virus itself or the TPOX medication. And what are the vision symptoms you're experiencing? I've been experiencing a lot of blurry vision mm. to the point where I, I don't wear glasses. So, but as a 46 year old man, I do have some vision changes. I do wear what pe- some people call cheaters or readers. And I usually use those only in the context of working on the computer, sometimes looking at my phone or reading things but I don't need them for any other purposes. During this, the onset of the HMPXV and taking this medication, I noticed a marked change in my vision. Mm. And I also had conjunctivitis, which my providers have told me is sometimes associated with monkeypox. And so that was diagnosed. Can you explain what conjunctivitis is for people who may not know? Yeah, conjunctivitis is basically inflammation of the conjunctiva, which is basically the inner lining of your eye. Mm. And so it's also known as pink eye. A lot of people um, know it better as pink eye. Does it make your eyes itchy? Yeah, I I mean, when you get extreme cases of pink eye, there's usually a lot of discharge. Mm. Depending on how severe it is, it's usually bacterial in nature. And it can make your eye really red, blurry, very, very itchy, and extremely just uncomfortable. Have you noticed a change since stopping the the treatment? Has it improved or gotten better? I would not say it's gotten better. Okay. Um, yeah, right now I'm still experiencing a lot of blurry vision. However, it's only been a, a couple days. Also, I'm still considered within the realm of active infection. Okay. Um, from HMPXV. So, you know, I certainly don't want to jump to any conclusions that the TPOX medication has caused this. I think that, in my opinion, it's more likely that it's the virus at this point, especially since I also had an issue with conjunctivitis in my left eye. Both eyes became red and inflamed. They sent me to an emergent visit to see eye specialist at OHSU who said that I did have conjunctivitis and then I had a follow-up with an eye specialist at the Devers Eye Institute here in Portland and they said I had conjunctivitis and ocular rosacea which is kind of a whole separate issue. Mm. You know ocular rosacea is usually experienced by people who have rosacea and if you get an outbreak of that that can be particularly nasty. And it can also cause vision changes. Okay. So it's kind of, for me right now, <laughs> it's kind of a perfect storm of a lot of different things happening at once. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I mean, and not only is it the physical symptoms that you're dealing with, but it's also the emotional ones. Obviously, this has been a challenge for you. Go ahead and tell us about that. I want you to have this platform to really explain to us how that's been for you. 
Well, I'd definitely say that it's been an emotional roller coaster. Yeah. At the onset of it, whenever it first started um, between me and my partner, I think both of us were just very scared. Like, we had no idea what to expect. We had no idea how this was going to progress. Obviously, me being in the medical field, I've seen some of the horror stories of how this has disfigured people, Mm. how it's left scars on their bodies. And those all were things that were immediately present in my mind as I got the diagnosis. Did you know anyone personally before this happened to you? No. No, my partner nor I had any close associates who have have gone through this. Mm -hmm. So we didn't have any personal stories to connect this to. Yeah. Which I think was even more scary. Yeah. You know, because all I had was the worst of the textbook cases, right? Mm -hmm. It was like, you know, dealing with it in a clinical setting. What we ended up seeing in a clinical setting was just a lot more scare. Like people coming in with all kinds of rashes and thinking they had monkeypox. And I would say 99.9 of those were negative Mm. and were not monkeypox at all. But, you know, upon working with the clinicians and seeing some of that, it's just like you couldn't help but like think of the worst case scenarios. Yeah. And like, are we going to be disfigured? How is this going to progress? I already deal with chronic uh, anxiety and depression. I have PTSD. So for me, this was especially challenging Mm -hmm. because this was just one more layer to put on all the stressors in my life already. And I think both my partner and I dealt with this as best we could under the circumstances because, you know, you just kind of, you just got to kind of take it day by day. And fortunately for him, he was able to continue working because he has the ability to work from home. And honestly, I think he would agree with me on this is that him having that platform and that regularity in his life and his, a little bit of a continuum of a schedule Mm -hmm. was actually helpful because it helped take his mind off of his diagnosis and any pain associated with it. For me, as a medical assistant and a person who works in a clinical setting, I was not able to continue working. I immediately had to just lock down. And although I'm in school part-time, I had a lot of time on my hands. Yeah. And that time, unfortunately, was time that was a little bit hyper-focused on the worst case scenarios. You know, like, how is this going to play out? Like, am I going to be forever scarred by this? Mm. Like, is this going to affect my face? And I know that sounds vain, but I think that it's a realistic thing that everybody would think about. Because if something affects our face, even if it's just a small blemish like acne, that is something that affects our self-esteem. Yeah. You know? Albeit temporarily, it still has that hit, that emotional hit. So having an infectious disease that had the potential to scar or disfigure was like ever present in my mind. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. I can see how that would really be unsettling to know. And especially because you are a professional and you, you know the facts and what can happen. Yeah. 
I think the other thing I w would like to speak to is uh, the insomnia associated with it that my partner and I both experience. Mm. Because when you're having the eruptions, they're incredibly itchy. Mm. So you're basically, you know, you're wanting to scratch just everywhere. And I had HMPXV that attacked my both my elbows. I had it on my hands. I had it near my genitals. I had it on both lower legs. And then, of course, my feet. And so if you can imagine like having something that is constantly itching in all those places and then still trying to sleep, there was lots and lots of sleepless nights. Oh dear. And are all of those same places still infected and in the same state of itchiness? Like have any of the symptoms improved at all or have they only gotten worse? No, definitely they've gotten better so that, so the itchiness is kind of like the first thing that you go through as they're starting mm. uh, to manifest on, on your skin and on other places uh, on your body. And then that eventually starts to go away. As the itchiness leaves, though, then it becomes more painful, mm. at least in our case. I wouldn't speak to every person's experience, but like in our case, we, we found that once the itching starts, stopped and i wouldn't say completely stopped but started to lessen the lesions or eruptions whatever you want to call them they became more painful in what way are they painful does it feel like a bruise or when i saw the emergency room physician i think he said it best he said i i haven't had this he said but most patients are describing it as more as like nerve pain mm. and i think that's accurate mm -hmm. and I think that a good test for that is that I was prescribed an opioid uh, just for a short course, just to see if it affected my pain. And I can tell you from my experience, it absolutely did not. Mm. And then there was another medication that my partner and I were given called gabapentin, also known as Neurontin. And it's more of a medication that affects the nerves. And it helps block some of that pain. And we both found it to be helpful. Okay. Um, in fact, I'm Dave is no longer taking it, but I'm still taking it because I'm still experiencing a lot of pain. Mm. And it has been helpful for me. Yeah. That's good that that's at least improved your your physical state. Where would you say you're at right now in terms of the mental and sort of emotional toll have you reached a plateau and you're sort of just dealing with it or is every day a kind of a new challenge i would say every day is a new challenge i mean yesterday was a bad day for me and the day before today i'm a little bit more upbeat um <laughs> and i would say i'm feeling a bit better but i also have two doctor's appointments tomorrow morning tomorrow morning i see my pcp and then i see an eye specialist right after and you know, I'm getting ready to start school full time. So the stressors in my life are actually not lessening. The stressors in my life are just getting, like, it seems like exponentially worse. So it's like, sometimes I feel like I'm going to reach a breaking point. But, you know, I'll say openly and, and very honestly and very proudly, I have a therapist, you know, that I see regularly and that person has made a huge difference in my life. And I think everyone on this planet should have a therapist. 
Yeah. Now, I do say that understanding that not everyone has access to that yeah. level of care. But absolutely, if you can afford it or if, if you can get into some program that can help you to access that sort of care, I think that you should because it just helps you to work things out and to not get caught in these cycles of anxiety and depression. Yesterday I had a panic attack and that panic attack was absolutely induced by everything I'm going through. Yeah. I mean, you're going through a lot and, and you have medical care, you have therapy and you have a partner and it's still hard for you. Like, I think that that is what talking to you is bringing into such clear focus is that this is not just a physical illness. It is one that goes to the core of who we are as people because it has a physical manifestation on the outside of our bodies. And as gay men, we know how much we value our looks. I mean, let's be honest. That's yeah. very important to gay men. And this goes to the heart of that. So I'm just really impressed with your ability to even just talk about it in a really meaningful way. I, I think I probably might crumple a little bit. But I mean, I will say this too, that, that gay people are fierce and hard and strong as fuck, you know, so... Yeah, we're pretty resilient. <laughs> so we also have some tools at our disposal that help us get through tough stuff. So that we do have that going for us. Um, I'm really glad that it sounds like you do have a support network. Um, and I think that what talking to you has really made me realize is that like, as much as we think that we're capable of just waiting things out and surviving an infection like this would be easy to do, especially if like you have a partner and friends that are going to help you out. It's still hard. It's hard to like, just wait. I mean, cause you don't know how long it's going to take. Yeah. Yeah. That's gotta be hard. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's, it's been, and even my partner, you know, I don't want to talk a lot about his personal experience, but I will say, you know, he's definitely expressed a lot of frustration yeah. to me. And we've expressed that back and forth to each other. But to your point, we do have each other. And yeah. I think that that is super important that we do have each other and we experience this together. I can't imagine. And I, I completely sympathize with anyone who is having to go this alone, so to speak. Yeah. And my hope from, you know, this opportunity you've given me to interview is that this is a lesson for other people, not just in terms of what this can do to you physically and the risks associated with it and whatnot, but how important it is that we support one another. Yeah. Yeah. Because, you know, we are, like you, you said, we are, we are strong. We are strong as fuck. I would agree with that. Um, resilient people. But we're very social people. Yeah. Gay men are extremely social or just gay people in general. All the queer and, and gay and transgender folks that I know are extremely social. And you take that away from them. And what do they have? 
you know that's a huge blow to your self-esteem just right there in in and of itself not to mention the pain not to mention the loss of work or income and all these other challenges that someone could face yeah what would you say people could do to most support people like yourself who are in your position, like I come from the Midwest. So if someone's sick, we bring them food, you know, we check in, we call, like what could be some ways that people could help support their friends or people they know are infected? I think those are all great things that you just said. And those are also things that we benefited from. We have friends who were able to bring us like casserole type dishes and like, you know, a big platter of like, um, we've received lasagna, um, tater tot casserole, um, (laughs) things like that. People brought like care bags full of like goodies, cookies and things like that. Uh, One of our friends brought us like um, a crafting kit, (laughs) you know? Yeah. And so we have definitely felt the love from our community in our area and aside from those creature comforts and making sure that someone has access to food because again dave and i are probably privileged in a way because we have the ability to we can afford to use delivery services Mm -hmm. so we can call and we can order fred meyer you know, or, or use Instacart or do whatever we need to do. But some people don't have that ability. Mm-hmm. So for those people, it would be uber important that we bring in staples that they need. Yeah. You know, do you have bread? Do you have milk? Mm-hmm. It's amazing how food can be more than just sustaining. It can be comforting and an expression of love and care. Absolutely. I love that somebody gave you a crafting kit. Like, what was the crafting kit? Was it like Latchuk or something? <laughs> <laughs> no, it was like beads and um, like different different things that you can put together. Like, like remember the old school like beads that you would like make your name yes. with and make necklaces. <laughs> That's what they brought. <laughs> That's fun. <laughs> yeah, and and a puzzle, of course. Of course, yeah. It's so wild how this whole monkeypox thing would happen right after or during the COVID pandemic. Cause like, I don't know, maybe that's a silver lining. Like people are maybe more empathetic to your situation, knowing that we all went through a pandemic already and we know how boring it is. (laughs) Yeah. It can be very boring. It's also forced my partner and I to, you know, to, to do things that we haven't done. Like mm-hmm. we, we really desperately needed to, to do some major things in our bedroom. And we went ahead and we took our downtime and we did those things. Today, he is actually out in the garage doing projects in the garage that he's put off for a long time. Well, I want to just wrap it up. But before we do, I just want to ask you, what would you most like listeners to hear about your perspective as a monkeypox survivor? I I think that the biggest thing I want people to hear is you are not alone. You have resources. Don't allow yourself to become isolated. Even if no one reaches out to you, reach out to others. Mm -hmm. Because oftentimes 
people are wrapped up in their own day-to-day stuff and it feels like no one cares. Yeah. You know, you're going through this thing and you're not hearing from anyone. You're also not being included in anything because people know that you're ill. Yeah. So I would say don't hesitate to reach out to others and engage them with you. Let them know where you are. Let Mm -hmm. them know what you need. Because if we don't tell people what we need, they don't know always. Yeah, that's so important to hear. I think we wish sometimes people would know what we're thinking and want, but we really have to ask for it. And that includes not only physical things like groceries or supplies, but it also means emotional support. Yeah. And, And if you're not getting it from your friends, reach out to a healthcare provider or somebody who can just talk to you. Or I would say also, you know, just uh, there's a lot of community support outside mm. of healthcare providers and our friends. There are like nonprofits that would step in and, and help and things like that. I just think that that kind of help is usually just a Google search away. Just be resourceful and try and get what you need. But I would say use your friends first. And the other message I would give to all of my queer friends and family, I would say, get vaccinated. Yeah. Make sure that you're getting vaxxed. You know, it's, you're not bulletproof after that first vaccination, get your second vaccination and realize that even after your second vaccination, you're only 85% protected. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's according to the maker of the vaccination, Genios. So, you know, just be safe, be careful, be mindful of your body. Look at your body, make sure that the partners that you're interacting with are healthy and that they've checked their body and they know their physical state. And I think with that in mind, we can absolutely beat this. Yeah. Well, thank you so much. It means so much that you would take time and talk with me. And I'm looking forward to sharing your story. And I will just say that like, the reason I know about your story is because you were posting about it on social media, you know, and <laughs> yeah. that takes a lot of bravery. And I'm just, I just want to say that I think you're very brave and that you're a very generous person for sharing your story. So thank you. Well, thank you. Thank you. I appreciate that. Eric's answers to Dave's pre-interview questions will appear in the show notes of this episode, in case you would like more detailed descriptions of Eric's monkeypox experience, as well as a link to the CDC website with more information. This season, Dave has been sharing some listener submissions about some fun hookups. And while those are fun to listen to, we're also interested in hearing from listeners who want to share some of the challenges they've experienced in their lives when it comes to queer sex. As any regular listener of Fruit Bowl knows, many of us have difficult stories that are just as meaningful as the fun and sexy ones. It's important for us to share these stories in an effort to destigmatize conversations about our difficult experiences. This past June, Jim sent in this next submission. Please be advised that Jim briefly described some very sensitive themes, including sexual abuse by a family member, sexual assault, drug use, and suicide.
My name's Jim. I'm 51 years old. I was raised in farm towns in western New York during the 70s and 80s. And because I'm in a long-time stable marriage to a woman, people who don't know me too well see me as straight. They just assume that is what it is, and I get a lot of privilege from that. On the other hand, people who know me at any level, I'll tell them in conversation, and I've posted this on social media to all my friends and tell people at work that I am not straight. I use the label bisexual most of the time because people get what that means. I don't believe in the gender binary, but I do believe that both folks who have my gender and others are those I'm attracted to. Men turn me on. I'm a little hesitant to talk about my first sexual experience because of that right-wing narrative about boys being groomed by older gay men. I don't want to reinforce that stereotype, but it just happens to be true in my case, and, and that was my father. This is Pride Month, and the opposite of pride is shame, and if I let that shame keep me silent about it, I, I can't have pride. So here goes. My first sexual experience was with my father. He initiated me over four years, starting when I was eight years old. And he had a lot of mental illnesses. He attempted suicide lots of the time. He was addicted to a lot of drugs. He was a mess. And he would take me down to the basement. And he'd call it New Age Healing and uh, started out with all these rituals of touch and crystals and tiger balm on chakras. But um, it, it turned into a lot of touching and kissing and probing and... And he'd tell me how special I was, and how wonderful I was, and how much um, he loved me, and how nobody understood him like I did. Uh, I was totally sucked in. And I thought it was my fault. I thought I had committed the crime of incest, which I was smart enough to know about as a middle schooler, and I was terrified I'd get arrested. And I knew I was gay because I loved it, I enjoyed it, I wanted more, and so I thought I was going to get arrested for incest if I said anything, and I thought I was uh, going to get beat up, possibly killed in my small conservative towns if I came out. I thought I was keeping quiet about it, but I wasn't too good about keeping quiet about it because I was pretty sexually precocious and I had really big appetites. There were a lot of boys, Anthony, Jimmy, Tim, Ricky, Andy, Nicholas. I even kissed my eighth grade English teacher and it turned out later on he'd been sleeping with my father. We would, you know, touch each other. Uh, we'd suck each other off on occasion. And there was this one boy who said we had to stop because if we didn't stop, we'd turn out gay. And I just remember replying to him, well, isn't that what we are? Huh. But it didn't matter that I kept my mouth shut because people knew anyway they could figure it out. Um, word got around, and so I was called all kinds of names, pansy, faggot, queer, queer bait. Uh, I got kicked and punched and shoved. I got beat up. The jocks would trip me, and 
One time they even took off my clothes and my shoes and then they pissed all over them and I had to find a custodian to get cleaned up and had to wear wet clothes the rest of the day. And they did not get in trouble, those jocks, not one bit. It's been complicated how I feel about men because all of those aggressions came from other boys and never from girls. I have felt warmth and understanding from girls and then as an adult from women. And women excite me socially and emotionally and physically. And they're not scary like men are, but men turn me on. And so throughout high school and college, I kept falling into friendships and relationships with women, but I kept falling into bed with men. When I was in college, I would go to Cleveland, the nearest big city, and I would find these adult theaters and bookstores, and then I'd figure out cruising spots. And I looked really young at the time for my age, so I was really popular. They'd be all over me and I'd soak up the attention. And every once in a while, I'd let one of them take me to dinner or give me bus money for the way home, even though I didn't need money for the bus. It was kind of scary, but I really loved it. It was just hot. And then I met and I married this woman I've been married to for 25 years. We're still in love. But 10 years ago, she developed the first of two incurable cancers. And while she's still with me, which is great, the chemotherapy treatments have erased her sex drive. And we have this huge imbalance, and that's a problem. So... With my wife's knowledge and consent, after a lot of communication and a lot of questions, we have an arrangement where I seek out sexual contact with men on occasion. And the deal is I have to make sure not to get emotionally entangled to help her deal with jealousy and to be safe about STIs. And then she's okay with it. And I tell her explicitly about it and it's all okay and above board. And it's a heck of a lot of fun. I have been to bathhouses in uh, D.C. and New York and Montreal and Toronto, and I've been to gay bars, but I really love the bathhouses because I love that freedom of stripping off my clothes, taking a long public shower, shaving down, and watching other men check me out. And then approaching the men I really like or letting them approach me, and then, you know, gently rejecting the men I don't like. I remember in Toronto, there was this one man who would not leave me alone, and I had to pin his head to a wall to get him to stop grabbing at my cock. But I realized I could do that, and that was kind of therapeutic. It helped me realize I'm a big, strong guy now. I have choices, and I can take care of myself. I'm not a little hopeless kid anymore. I did not choose this when I was younger, but I do choose it now. It's on pause during the pandemic, but when things get safe enough for me to avoid COVID, I am so eager to pick up right where I left off. Thanks to Jim for sharing your story with our listeners. If you are in crisis and are struggling with thoughts of suicide, call the Suicide and Crisis Hotline by dialing or texting 988 or call The Trevor Project, a suicide prevention and crisis intervention organization for LGBTQ young people at 888-743-0331.
Fruitball interviews are edited for length and narrative clarity and are approved by each interviewee before being released. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com where you can learn more about this episode, browse the episode archive, and watch original videos. Fruit Bowl collects histories from all different backgrounds and experiences. Cisgender women, trans and genderqueer individuals, black people, indigenous people, and people of color. It's only by collecting diverse stories that we can begin to see what unites us. Interested in sharing your story? Find out more about the interview process, including a full list of questions, a description of the collaborative interview process, and news about future production. Visit fruitbowlpodcast.com for links and contact information. Fruit Bowl is produced independently without any corporate media infrastructure or full-time staff. Help support our efforts to collect, archive, and share personal stories about queer coming of age by making a small monthly donation through Fruit Bowl's Patreon membership. Patrons get early access to episodes, behind-the-scenes updates, and exclusive video outtakes from each episode that are not available to the general public. Or promote your business by sponsoring an episode of Fruit Bowl or dedicate an episode to a loved one. Episode sponsorships and dedications are 100% tax-deductible through Fruit Bowl's fiscal partnership with Seattle's Northwest Film Forum. Fruit Bowl receives no direct funding from Northwest Film Forum, only the use of their nonprofit status to receive tax-deductible donations. Learn more at fruitbowlpodcast.com slash donate or write dave at fruitbowlpodcast.com for more information. Social media platforms often censor mentions or depictions of queer sexuality. Accounts are often suspended or banned outright without notice or due process. As a result, Promoting Fruit Bowl is an uphill battle, so we rely on you to help spread the word. Tell your friends about Fruit Bowl, rate us on your podcast platform, or write a review on Apple Podcast. And, of course, you can also follow us, for now, on Twitter at Fruit Bowl Pod, and Instagram and TikTok at Fruit Bowl Podcast. Fruit Bowl is created, produced, and edited by Dave Quantic. I'm Rebecca M. Davis. This has been a production of Cubed Media, all rights reserved. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening.